This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by Ray Secure, leaders in real-time 3D imaging technology to keep businesses and their people safe and productive. Learn more at raysecure.com. Um, we were assuming that based on what you just talked about with social media um, and students you know, being willing to put just about anything out there, that they wouldn't have privacy concerns to the extent that maybe those of us who've been around a little bit longer would. The reality is that um, I think they do have concerns about privacy. A lot of the folks that I spoke with, um, what really drove them for their lateral and vertical moves was that that thirst or that interest to build upon themselves and build build more, become more knowledgeable. All that and so much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Michael Sink is the Chief Technology Advisor for Worldwide Technology and the former Associate Vice President and Deputy CIO for the University of Central Florida. Mr. Michael Sink, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you, Chuck, and thanks for inviting me to the conversation with you. Today's topic is integrated security and privacy on modern campuses the fragmented digital experience. Now, Mr. Michael, full disclosure, I was a police officer for 15 years, three agencies in Southern California. My last agency, the University of California system, state police assigned to UCLA. I know a little bit about this topic. And of course, my first question is, it's a university. Aren't they up on the latest technology and privacy? Aren't they at the cutting edge? They may have invented it, but they don't necessarily use it. Is that a, is that a fair statement? It is a fair statement. I think, um, you know, depending on which university and which which area on campus, there may be uh, some variation there. But um, it's kind of like the, uh, the the cobbler's children, <laughs> the shoe cobbler's children, where, um, you know, they've certainly had a lot to do with inventing some of the technology. But actually putting it in place, they're often competing priorities for funding and that sort of thing, um, you know, within many campuses and institutions across the country. Um they typically are very decentralized in terms of the different services that are being provided on campus. So, you know, you may end up with multiple camera systems depending on when buildings were built. You know, they weren't obviously built at the same time. Uh, there are many different building access systems, uh, many different applications that are that were acquired and uh, that are administered by many different departments on campus. So it's 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 not all coordinated like you would hope, um, and I think that's just the the nature of the way things evolve over time on a university campus with those, um, you know, contention for resources. Who typically drives this issue? We might think it's the campus police or security department, but to your point, with all the different the departments themselves are fragmented more than the digital experience is fragmented. And if your department, you know, has a legacy system there and doesn't want to improve it because of their budget, then that's fragmented. There's not much you can do about that. But is there somebody that that kind of oversees a lot of this and stuff and says, hey, let's try to get this together? In, in some cases, there are, you know, many campuses or many universities, institutions across the country have, uh, you know, chief information security officers that are ultimately accountable for uh, the cybersecurity and data privacy posture on campus and from the physical security perspective, you're absolutely right. You know, public safety, the university police departments are typically responsible for, you know, physical safety, um, but they're not always necessarily coordinated 
um, across all those functions. So, for example, on the, on the physical security side, you know, while the police department may have access to the camera systems across campus, they were not necessarily um, in the driver's seat when it came to selecting a camera system for, um, you know, housing and residence life for the dorms or for camera systems on the, the new building that was built last year. So um, while they're sort of accountable and responsible because the budget is distributed amongst the, the college, the colleges and the divisions across the campus, it's difficult to maintain and get your arms around all of those disparate systems on campus. So it's it's kind of the unenviable position of being responsible and accountable without um, the authority to make the, the decisions <laughs> in the first place in terms of acquisition and how to administer those. That sounds like every corporate position I've ever had. So things uh, aren't always different <laughs> <laughs> most places. <laughs> now, uh, here's I'm going to be devil's advocate on this. All right. So I came from the physical security sure. side from law enforcement. I know a lot about uh, the digital side of it, and I kind of self-taught myself. Got my first computer in 1984. So I've seen the progression from you know Windows 3.1 and DOS to where we are today. My experience is this: I'm not so sure the fragmented digital experience on a campus is necessarily a bad thing or something in in a less efficient position. And here's why. If you had one app that ran everything on campus and tied to all the other things that we've seen a lot of applications, you create a larger vulnerability. In other words, there's fewer attack vectors uh, to get into that lead into all the other systems. And right now, if everybody's got their own little standalone app and one might be DOS and it's not even on the internet, you know, it, it frankly makes you safer in some ways. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I know it's hard to manage, but from a uh, cybersecurity point of view, it could be safer. I, I think it's true. You know, there's... Uh, if someone were to compromise, let's say everything was um, housed in a single application, you have one data set, you know, one, one, uh, one place to, to go and exploit, uh, that would be a goldmine for, you know, a, a threat. Um, so someone hacking in, they, they get, you know, the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, just by hacking into that one application. So I agree with you. I think um, it, it does make it a larger target. Um, at the same time, I think what happens on campuses as well is that because the systems and applications are so numerous and duplicative, they're pulling from the same source of information anyway, but it makes it difficult to secure all those points. And so you're, you're actually increasing the surface area of risk, even though you're not putting all your eggs in one basket, they're more distributed. But once you get access to those, many times what happens is there's a there's lateral movement once you get access to an application or the network. And then typically you can find other sources of information, other applications that are vulnerable. So it's you're absolutely right. I think it's um, it's a catch 22. I mean, it would be nice to have a seamless digital experience. Um, I think the best you could hope for or strive towards is you're not going to have one application that does everything. And I don't think that should necessarily be the goal. I think where you have distributed applications, you want to stitch together the experience so that it doesn't appear that you're actually traversing across multiple applications, if that makes sense. Uh, actually, it does. As a matter of fact, you explain that very, very well. Now, let's talk about tying this all to privacy. Uh, you know, I, I came from California, and of course, California has one of the leading privacy laws out there, you know, for protection of personal information, uh, and so does Europe, right? And I think I think the United States is moving That's right. to, to something in between those two privacy policies, which I'm all for, by the way. Normally, I'm not for anything 
coming out of California usually as far as legislation, but I think they got this right. What are the challenges here on campuses cross country? Every state is going to have a little different privacy law, but let's speak in our conversation about the top levels. How do we protect the privacy issue if our systems are fragmented? To your point earlier, there's lateral movement that could be found and, and those records and things can be located anyway if you had a hacker. But I, I guess the question is, you know, how do the how do the students feel about this? Or are, are they leaning on the privacy side? Because, you know, their TikTok pages would not suggest that. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think our assumptions early on when we were having discussions, when we were considering, you know, facing things like GDPR um, and, you know, certainly assuming that some of the privacy laws that were passed and adopted in California would make their way across you know, the entire U.S., um, we were assuming that based on what you just talked about with social media um, and students, you know, being willing to put just about anything out there, that they wouldn't have privacy concerns to the extent that maybe those of us who've been around a little bit longer would, um, and maybe they just don't understand the consequences and that sort of thing. So those were all discussions that we had. Um, and the reality is that um, I think they do have concerns about privacy. Um, if they choose to share information and know what the purpose is for giving that information, I think they're okay, um, you know, going along with providing information. Um, where I think we as stewards of that data um, have to be more responsible is in terms of making sure that the students are aware how we're going to use the data. So when we collect your name, address, date of birth, social security number, whatever, First of all, do we need to collect all those pieces of information or are we simply making it more convenient for ourselves to do so up front? Um, great example. So my daughter just applied to college uh, last. She started applying to colleges last fall and certain um, institutions um, in the state of Florida were requesting Social Security numbers. And the reality is that unless you're applying for financial aid, you really don't have to provide your Social Security number on a college application. It's not really required to apply to the college. Some universities were okay with us not providing the social, others were not. So I think first of all, from a data privacy perspective, again, making sure that we're transparent and clear about what elements of your you know, personal information are being recorded and how they're being used. And so we, you know, we're asking students to sign documents to say, hey, this is how we're, you know, everybody that kind of clicks through some of those things probably should read those a little more carefully to understand how organizations are using their data or intend to use their data. And by the way, what, what we fear sometimes is that as departments collect information, will those intentions change over time? And have we gone back to let people know that we've changed the way that we're going to use their information? So it may not be anything uh, that we're doing intentionally wrong, but could we unintentionally use data just because we have it, even though that may not be what the the users or the owners of that data intended for us to use in the first place. You know, those are excellent points. I want to move backwards on the privacy issue a little bit to uh, ownership. Uh, you know, there, there's the debate on that, you know, who owns the data, the campus, the student, it's probably both. But really, Let's talk about how it's secured. And do you think campuses are doing a good job of understanding 
that they are the steward here. They're the ones that need to keep it locked up and secured. And are they doing a good job? I mean, let's not argue about who collects what. That's debatable. But listen, once you have something, you got to lock it down. I'm not so sure that's consistent in all these different states and countries uh, where the data is collected. I think to the extent that security professionals are aware, and, and I think this is part of the issue with some of the distributed decentralized nature of some of those applications that we were talking about before. I think to the extent that the security professionals who have been trained in um, you know, how to protect the data and how to keep it safe, to the extent that they have a full inventory of that data and you know, the applications that are collecting, consuming, and you know, acting on that data, um, I think universities are doing a better job in protecting the data. I think what tends to happen sometimes is it could just be a simple spreadsheet that, you know, a college or a department is using to collect information. And if the security professionals aren't aware of it, it's difficult to protect that data. So I think um, one of the things that universities have done to address that is to create security awareness programs across the faculty and staff and, of course, the students. but um, certainly the faculty and staff that could be an entry point for some of that data and some of those applications that maybe a grad student helped write, right? I mean, so it's not even necessarily something that they bought off the shelf. Um, and so I, I think it's it's a struggle sometimes to even have a, a complete comprehensive inventory of what's out there. Uh, but once you do, I think uh, the the security professionals are doing a good job to the extent that um, that they can with the funding and the, the staffing resources that they have. Um, but are they, you know, completely protecting all of the surface area? Probably not. I mean, they're, they're chasing their tail in many ways with new threats that continue to surface. Well, and a lot of these uh, data sets uh, overlap, right? So uh, I retired a long time ago, and I've been involved in the last three uh, University of California data breaches, <laughs> which were in the news, right? I'm not the only one. There's hundreds of thousands of people in that. Now, what's interesting is, sure, my data was breached as my background and my employment as a police officer and so on. But then that merged into the medical insurance coverage, which is also part of that system, right? And that's a HIPAA uh, issue, right, to protect uh, data from about uh, medical stuff. So I think there's a lot of people here that are looking at the data. And when those data sets intersect, uh, that becomes kind of unmanageable because you're just not really sure what other data is contained in things outside your data set, right? So it's a, it's a big challenge. Right. Are you finding that the students, because the students tend to drive a lot of issues on campuses, are they speaking up and driving some of these things and saying, hey, you guys, you know, let's, let's up, the, up the bar on this kind of thing? Or is this, is this a grassroots movement to modernize or uh, is it coming from the top down? Um, it, well, it's coming from all directions, I think. Uh, to be honest with you, I think the students show up, uh, students and parents alike show up. When they provide the data, they expect it to be secured. Um, and But they're not necessarily investigating or, you know, looking behind the scenes to make sure that it is. They're just, I think they're making that assumption. Um, from a top-down perspective, um, a lot of the you, know, you talked about the University of California system, um, and I, I worked in the university or the uh, state university system in Florida, and their board of governors and their board of trustees for each of the institutions, they're very concerned about um, the institutional reputation, credibility, um, and of course, you know, the 
the risk to exposure of personal information, of private information. Um, and that's not just limited to students, you know, and of course the employees of the institution. It's also, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, HIPAA um, and universities are like many cities. So they have uh, HIPAA compliance to contend with. They have uh, FERPA for you know, the students' uh, academic records. Um, from a research perspective, many institutions are doing research with the federal government. Um, and so there's controlled unclassified information um, that they have to contend with in their compliance and regulatory requirements around handling of that data. There's intellectual property, uh, there are national security concerns at, at stake. So um, it is quite a swath of you know compliance and regulatory they have to deal with. Um, and so I think it's coming from all sides, including you know all the way up to the federal government. But um, to, to your original point in terms of you know the students, are they really questioning? Um, probably not until there's a breach. I think there's just a, a certain level of expectation that their data is going to be secure until it's not. So you've been in this business a long time, and you've been in this space a long time. What's your what's your gut feeling on this? Are we are we moving in the right direction? Is it, and is it getting done fast enough? Um, I don't think it's getting done fast enough, and I think there are uh, reasons for that. N number one, I think the decentralized nature of the way that technology is acquired and administered and, and implemented on campuses, um, it makes it more difficult for the security professionals to have a good inventory and be able, be able to protect all those assets. Um, I also think there there is a, a lack of funding, or there has been up until recently. One of the things that COVID over the last couple of years did was provide an avalanche of cash from the federal government to enhance not just the hybrid environment of being able to continue to instruct, you know, remotely and in a hybrid fashion with some people being on campus and some people being remote, but also to secure the digital experience because, you know, many of the systems that were being used were online systems. And so there was a, a recognition that there needed to be better security protocols in place. And so there's a lot of cash. Here's the problem the the internal staff is typically very thin when it comes to the secure, the IT security departments, the infosec departments. Um, and to add insult to injury with the great resignation um, and because higher ed doesn't maybe pay as well as, you know, other other market rates, um, they're losing staff. So it's difficult to hire and retain staff. So it's a workforce problem. It's a funding problem. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, one way to combat that is to to reach out and and maybe partner with folks who can help accelerate the adoption of security protocols um, and fill the gaps in staff um, where they exist or where they show up. Michael Sink speaking about integrating security and privacy on modern campuses, the fragmented digital experience. Mr. Michael, good stuff, my friend. Very insightful and easy to understand. Uh, but I think to your point, although we're not doing it fast enough, I, it's good to know that many people are involved and are trying to get this get this done, and we really need to get there before we have a bigger problem. Thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. Appreciate the opportunity. Will Plummer, Race Secure, welcome back to Security Management Highlights, my friend. How are you doing, brother? Good. We're going to talk about mail security as it as it applies to university uh, and some of the privacy issues involved in that. So. You know, I, my background is I, I worked at a university as a police officer. That was my last assignment for many years. And, you know, as a police department, we didn't really get involved too much 
in the university mailroom, wasn't anything under our jurisdiction, so to speak. And I know we had issues, right? Because it's kind of a bunch of kids that are working there. It's their summer jobs or or whatever. Uh, What is the status of universities and mailrooms right now? Are are they looking at mail security differently than they did 10 years ago? Uh, Absolutely. I believe they are. So there's been a few problems uh, in the last, let's say, nine months. You know, historically black colleges, all, not all, but a majority of them, I think it was uh, 14 or 15 you see bomb threats. Some of them did come through the mail and were delivered. Uh, there's a large amount of contraband that ends up getting pulled through the mail and gets sent into clo- you know, closed campuses. Same thing with, with corrections industries. Anywhere where you have a large amount of people, they're, they're congregating and there's infrastructure behind it, uh, that infrastructure gets used. And it gets used for nefarious reasons on a, on a regular basis. And unfortunately, it, it's more common than we all would like to think. You know, I just watched a special on the Unabomber, uh, and I learned a lot of things that I didn't realize. One of them, you know, he, first of all, he had a 17-year reign on this thing. And, of course, he was focused on universities and airlines. Yep. But he didn't really mail most of his stuff. He really hand-delivered it, uh, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. So if we fast forward on this, are, are mail deliveries more common than ever? Uh, we like to think of our service as secure, but, you know, everybody's so clever nowadays with all the things they do. It's almost impossible to prevent that unless, you know, they're using some of your products or something. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, it, it is really hard to do. So the last mile style threat where, you know, it's uh, it's usually a third party that's going to get paid to deliver the package or whatever possible item, whatever item it is, that last mile. Because, a lo- you know, a large company doesn't want to deal with all the all the intricacies of getting in and out of, of, of locations. Uh, it's, it's quite common. Um, it's easy to do. People assume it's anonymous where, you know, somebody it, it basically puts an intermediary in the, in the, in the mix. Um, the other part is people also think mail gets screened and a majority of it. Yes, it does get screened through TSA regulations because it does fly, but it's getting bulk screened and it's just going to get delivered. Um, a majority of whatever you put in the mail will show up on the other end uh, in the condition that you put it in. So the Unabomber is a great example. Yet he last mile style guy, a lot of stuff. He did go out of his way to, you know, not get caught, but he also left a lot of things that still that people still do wrong today. If you're going to mail a threat, he would write it in one location with one address and then drop it off at another mailbox that's at a different zip code. So the cancellation stamp didn't match the return address. Um, there's a lot of things that that still happen today that happened in the 70s and 80s. Well, let's talk about privacy. One might think that uh, everybody's happy about scanning their mail because you could prevent some sort of terrible incident like that. Maybe not so. I mean, I'm a law firm. Do I want my mail scanned? Do I want somebody looking at my mail with a, a sender address that's some high-level executive or politician, right? I mean, mail on the outside of it could disclose confidential things, right? So when we put equipment in place Absolutely. to do this, how do we explain this to clients? How do we say, listen, we get the confidentiality part, we get HIPAA, we get legal communications, we get student notices, we get all this sort of stuff. How do you explain that to them, that that, that is protected, the privacy part? So with, for us, for example, when we drop a piece of equipment in, it's to their own folks that already know the information that they're trying to keep close hold. Um, we, we've worked with the facilities employees, so it's not being outsourced and it's not being sent off to a third party who's going to digitize it grab all that data, throw it on their database or on their hard drives, and then um, do whatever they're going to do with it. Usually sell your information, right? Um, so it's not really a problem for us because we 
it doesn't leave the organization. Uh, I'll tell you that we also do training with the security teams to help them understand. You, you think you're just grabbing a picture with your cell phone camera to send off to the security lead. That's probably a bad idea. You don't want to give all that data that you can give up. Like where the CEO sleeps at night. A lot of people don't realize how hard that information can be to get. But once you have it, the amount of damage you can do with it. Now, I want to touch on your career. So you speak with a sense and a tone uh, of authority. Tell us about your background. This is very interesting. I think a lot of people don't know this. Uh, so I spent uh, about 25 years in the bomb squad with the Army, um, both enlisted as an and then as an officer. So I was 12 and 12 and a half, um, retired in 2019, and then stepped into this role. And I've really been enjoying myself. But it's it's interesting to see how much corporate America really does kind of look like a military organization. I, I've, I've been enjoying learning as much as I've learned, but it's still got some of the pitfalls, some of the same problems. Fantastic, my friend. Will Plummer, Race Secure, always a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, good luck to you this year at uh, all the trade shows. We'll see you around. See you. Thank you very much, brother. Appreciate it. Shelly Kozicek, CPP, is a security leader with more than 20 years of experience. She has worked in a variety of fields and is dedicated to continuous development. Shelly is also a vice chair in the ASIS International Professional Development Community. Shelly Kozicek, CPP, welcome to Security Management Highlights. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Today's topic is security switchers. And we're going to talk about a security professional's career moving vertically or laterally or across sectors and why self-awareness and preparation are, are a must to streamline these switches. Uh, if people asked me 40 years ago or 45 years ago when I started my career, would I be doing podcasts? I would say, are you out of your mind? I didn't have a plan. I wound up here, Shelley. So this will be an interesting conversation to me to look at it from the perspective of someone with no plan that had a great career, but kind of fell into things. Tell me to start, let's talk about the types of career moves. What, why do people move and how do they do that? Great question. Thank you so much. So as you mentioned earlier, there are horizontal or lateral uh, moves within various different professions and talking within security. Oftentimes, uh, individuals may feel that need to make the vertical climb within their career path, uh, being a frontline security professional to move up through leadership, um, to become maybe a supervisor or a manager or a director or up the ranks as you go. Another type of security move or move would be lateral, meaning say you're in physical security right now and you wanna to move to cyber security. Understanding and appreciating what you need to have for that, that lateral move is really important uh, and as part of that, and to your question about how you can assess or where you need to assess where your, and if you could see me, I'm doing air quotes, where your gaps of knowledge may, may occur, especially when you're making any type of move, doing research beforehand and understanding what that new career path that you want to choose within security may look like. 
And I will just take a moment here to really stress the importance of your network. And ASIS is wonderful for helping individuals in the security profession build their network through GSX and other security-related communities. Like, I'm going to do a shameless plug for a minute for the professional development community, which I'm involved in. You can always um, build your network by becoming involved in the various different communities, GSX. And it's really through that network that people and comrades will help you along your career path and help you to also understand where that gap may be in your, your knowledge and how you might be able to build on that. Do you need to take extra courses? Do you need to get additional assistance in learning more about, let's say, security leadership or uh, physical security or cybersecurity? So really, it comes down to where you want to go and where you see yourself um, traveling within your security journey. So uh, hopefully that's answered your question. I think I gave a little bit more there and in areas where you can help uh, help yourself by building those connections as well. Well, that's a great start to our conversation. I'm going to come at this with a little different perspective and, and ask you this. How do we get to self-analysis for switchers and how do we know we're making the right decision? In my career, which is going to be the opposite of what we're talking about, I was solicited. People came to me and says, we want to hire you at Fox. We want to hire you at Cobra City PD. We want to hire you at Disney. My self-analysis was, oh, well, uh, I guess they like me. I'm going to go there for more money. It wasn't really deep, except when I got there to those places, I had no studio experience running a, a studio security department, right, for two biggest studios in the world. I had to learn on the job. And, you know, it's a little uh, daunting, right, to, to accept that. So I see what you're talking about to fill the, the knowledge gap, but sometimes we're just kind of thrust in these positions. What's the analysis for people that are that are sought out and pulled into the positions and sought after? That's a really great question. And in the article in the ASIS Security Management, where I go over some of the security switchers and individuals that I interviewed, uh, one such individual did highlight that as having those mentors and individuals that kind of push them in the direction or received guidance from others or people reached out to them for interest in their, their skill set. What, um, what can be done in that situation or what is helpful is really doing your research about the organization or the company that you're you're looking to go into. And also if there is a certain, um, let's say technology that this company works on that you're unfamiliar with, making sure that you become familiar with that within your first 90 days, becoming familiar, 90 days in air quotes, 90, 120, but becoming knowledgeable about that technology so you understand what the company's vision as well as their area of focus is. Uh, and then also when you're starting into a new organization that um, you've been led to, 
understanding your team, understanding the dynamics, understanding the culture is also going to be extremely important for you um, as one gets into that security field. I would also recommend or, or say that for those individuals that have someone leading them or they got tapped on the shoulder for, uh, also see what your network um, mentions about the company, um, reach out to your other security professional contacts, see if you can get some more information. As I mentioned before, really using that network to help you as you transition. For those who have an inner pull um, to a different area of security, as I mentioned before, say you're going from physical security to cyber security, um, really doing that self-analysis of your um, what area gaps you may have. Um, and that could be understanding or looking at position descriptions for the or for the position that you're interested in. For example, say you want to become an information system security officer, and there are certain prerequisites to have and training to have as part of that, then um, understanding through those position descriptions and vacancies, what requirements and training, and then seeking out that training and going to that training will uh, help you as you want to make that lateral or horizontal move. You know, so back in the day, uh, and that goes back a long time with me, you made moves <laughs> laterally because, you know, maybe you're looking for more money. Maybe you're looking for better benefits. It was kind of based on that kind of model. You had a more secure career in police work. Now it's kind of out the window, of course. What are some of the drivers here that make people want to switch? Surely money, benefits, I think that's kind of old school because now we have the great resignation and people are staying out of work, looking for that right job, perfect job, switching security careers from, uh, let's say, a guard to a, uh, a clerk at McDonald's, right, to make more money. What are some of these drivers that, that start your journey, and does the driver influence how you map your switch? Yes, um, excellent question, Chuck. Thank you so much for asking that. So um, being a security switcher myself uh, and traversing throughout uh, the security game, really understanding and mapping that switch um, to your point is examining your career path, where you'd like to go um, and where that inner pull is coming for you. So in the article, um, as I mentioned earlier, there was one individual that I interviewed who always, uh, who mentions that they always had that they always had that interest in cybersecurity. They always wanted to learn more about it. They always were very interested on in how uh, cyber worked, and they were always seeking improvement in themselves. So that was really the catalyst for them uh, for a lateral change for them at that time. And I think um, really deep down, when you are considering changing, there is that, there is that, you know, back of your mind or that like knocking. I always like refer it to somebody's knocking on the door and, you know, there's that pull somewhere else. So I would always look at that and say, what is it that interests you? Where is your driver? 
And for folks who are making those lateral moves, it's not necessarily for the pay, as you mentioned, or the benefits, but it's more about improvement in self, as well as that inner, inner drive and inner compass of improvement and interest in what security field they want to pursue. Um, it doesn't always necessarily equate to making more money. It might equate to flexibility. It might equate to, um, as you mentioned, the great resignation, being able to work part-time or being able to, you know, travel less or all of these things while continuing to build their security knowledge. So hopefully that answers your question, but a lot of the folks that I spoke with, um, what really drove them for their lateral and vertical moves was that that thirst or that interest to build upon themselves and build build more, become more knowledgeable. So what if we get it wrong? Uh, I speak from a lot of experience when I say that. I've been working since I was 12 years old. I've been in the, in the workforce for 50 years. And believe me, I've made more than a few career mistakes and changes. How do we handle something where we come up with a calculation, we do our analysis, it all looks good. And when we get there, it's like, wow, that was a big mistake. Do we stick to it and try to make it work or do we just bounce somewhere else? So that's a really great question. And I think that's really up to the individual and the the situation that they're in. If it's a if it's a bad situation culturally and it doesn't really mesh with um, with where you are, um, that's something that internally I think each individual needs to to answer themselves. But if you find that um, you're in an organization that, or in a career setting that is just not meant for you um, or does not interest you the way that you thought you would, you know, being able to have that flexibility and lean on your network and lean on your mentors to help you through that in whatever path that may be that works well for you. And I say that because each individual and each individual circumstance may be different. There might be a cultural or, or uh, heaven forbid, toxic situation where, you know, a move will need to occur. Or it might just be you need some uh, one individual may need some more time to really uh, become comfortable in an organization, especially if it's a new type of security um, platform or security tool. Shelly Kozicek, CPP. Excellent advice, Ms. Shelly. Thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, and good luck in your next career bounce. Thank you so much. Appreciate the time today. This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by RaySecure, leaders in real-time 3D imaging technology to keep businesses and their people safe and productive. Learn more at raysecure.com.